0: Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we are going to explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. As a CPA for the past 30 years, wait, let me say 25 because that makes me sound younger, I have seen it all when it comes to money and emotions. And if you think I'm talking about my clients, I'm not. I'm talking about myself. My relationship with money has been, and sometimes still is, An emotional roller coaster. Maybe that's something you're also familiar with. Good news. You and I are not the only ones. Our next guest is going to share their money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges as well. Buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the ride. Imagine landing your dream job, and then imagine having your supervisor take credit for your work, time and again. Infuriating, right? For our next guest, productivity expert and Wired editor, Alan Henry, this scenario was his reality. When it happened to Henry, he, like so many others, buried his feelings and stayed quiet. Alan is passionate about sharing work rules that allow people of color, women, and LGBTQ folks the same access to career advancement as their more privileged counterparts. Alan started to explore these ideas while working as the smarter living editor at the New York Times and delves deeper into them with his recently released book, Seen, Heard, and Paid, The New Work Rules for the Marginalized. Folks, go buy that book. It's amazing. Thank you. Please do. (laughs) (laughs) We will. Alan has been writing and editing stories about technology and productivity for over a decade at various publications, including Lifehacker. In his spare time, he enjoys gaming and Star Trek.
1: I have a huge Star Trek
0: fan. Love it, love it, love it. Alan, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you wrote this book that's a necessary book. Yeah. And as I was reading some of it, specifically, I was reading gaslighting and microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And right before I got to this certain section, I thought, man, this has got to be exhausting. (laughs) Like, right? No, I was like, this is exhausting. Even just reading about other people's experiences. I can't imagine even living it. And then, of course, the next paragraph was this is exhausting. It is exhausting. (laughs) So, (laughs) Talk to me about you had these experiences and decided I've got to write this book. I've got to codify this and let people know it's real because a lot of people out there might be saying, am I being gaslighted? Is this really Mm -hmm. happening to me? Can you just share a little bit about your journey?
1: Yeah, I mean, geez, the first time I noticed something was really weird. I was the editor-in-chief of Lifehacker, and Lifehacker used to be a property that was owned by Gawker Media. Gawker Media, as a company, went bankrupt, lost a very widely publicized lawsuit against Hulk Hogan. And- <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it was bizarre. It was bizarre. <laughs> and it was even more bizarre being there at the time. But still, lost this lawsuit, went bankrupt as a result. And was acquired by Univision. Now, as part of that acquisition, we got a new CEO. That new CEO came in and he made a point to meet with all of the site editors in chief, except me. And I thought that was kind of weird. Maybe he just didn't get around to me yet. Okay. Then I went to this meeting, this big business meeting where I had to give a presentation about what Lifehacker was and what we did and what our numbers looked like and all this other stuff. And I did that and then I tried to approach him after that big meeting, after I gave a presentation. And he was just uninterested in talking to me. It took one of my direct reports at the time to approach him and say, hi, my name is blank and this is my boss, the editor-in-chief, Alan Henry. We haven't met yet. And that was when he finally turned his attention to me. I knew something was wrong there, but fast forward to the New York Times. I had left Lifehacker, joined the New York Times, and I was smarter living editor. I was doing great work. But then I started noticing that I was being kind of excluded from certain opportunities, (laughs) like big projects were getting launched. And for some reason, I wasn't being invited to the meeting. Or the one story I start the book with is a situation where we all go around the room. I'm in the meeting with another team that we are just getting to know. And we all go around the room and we introduce ourselves and we tell everybody, "Okay, this is my name and this is what I do. My manager is in this meeting, right? One of my coworkers comes in late and that's fine. I'm not digging on him for coming in late, but he comes in late and my manager says, okay, well, hold on. Let him introduce himself and tell everybody what he does. So he introduces himself and then proceeds to tell everybody that he doesn't just say what he does. He tells everybody that he does what I do. Right. He does what our peers who are also in the room do and then characterizes it like he's in charge of all of it. And I'm sitting in this meeting, staring daggers at my manager, like, say something. Do something, because this is wrong, giving everybody the wrong impression. But then in that moment, I had a choice, right? I could either stand up and say something and say, hey, that's not quite right, or I can swallow it and just kind of let it happen. And I chose to let it happen, mostly because I have that social baggage where I was the only Black editor in the room. I have to come off wondering whether or not if I stand up for myself, are people going to think that I'm aggressive? Am I angry? Am I the angry Black man, right? Right. And that's not who I am. And I had to kind of debate that. And ultimately, I decided, no, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to rock the boat. When that all happened, I started to kind of get this feeling that something was going on, but it wasn't just maybe it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. I reached out to a bunch of other social scientists to write this article that I published at The New York Times called What to Do If You Feel Like You're Being Discriminated Against at Work. And that was kind of how it started. That was how the whole journey started. I published that article on my own before anybody could tell me not to. (laughs) And then immediately after that, I got an email from a book editor at Penguin Random House saying, hey, would you like to talk about turning this idea into something bigger that might help a lot of people? Mm -hmm. That email went to spam. (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) it went to spam. But what didn't go to spam was the email from my literary agent who worked with that editor the next day who said, hey, why don't we meet and talk about turning this idea into a book. And that's how the process got started. Wow. That's awesome. Let me ask you this.
0: Mm -hmm. When you were growing up, did you notice the differences? Like you started to notice it at work, but did your parents make you aware or say, hey, life might be a little bit harder Mm -hmm. or were you sheltered? Like, can you tell me a little bit about your journey as a kid?
1: Yeah. One story that I like to tell that got cut from the book for length was the first time I kind of realized that I was different Mm -hmm. than other people. I was going to be treated differently. My parents had primed me for this, right? I mean, if you were a child of any minority group, you kind of get some of that talk early on. People are going to treat you differently for reasons you can't control. And that's not you, that's them. So I got a lot of that. But what had happened, I used to live in Georgia. My father was military, and he was stationed at Fort Gordon, just outside of Augusta. I was a kid riding my bike up and down. I mean, this is when we used to let kids play feral in the neighborhood. Right. That's how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I was riding my bike home from a friend's house. And my shoelaces got caught up in my bike pedal and I fell off my bike. But I didn't just fall off my bike. I fell into a planter that somebody had put around their mailbox with these kind of jagged edged bricks. Oh, no. All around the corner of the curb. And I just slashed my leg open, just wide open. I think I was like seven or eight. And I am on the ground screaming in pain. And then not too far from me, there are two men and a moving truck or a delivery truck or something. And I'm screaming in pain. I can't move. I can't feel my leg. And I'm reaching out to them for help. And they look me dead in the eye. And then they get in the truck. And then they drive around me in the street to drive away. (laughs) Wow. I mean, and I'm sitting here, and now, at this age, I'm like, I would never do that to a seven-year-old child who just hurt himself, right? Right. So what was it about me that made them just completely walk away? Now, I will never know the answer to that, the real answer to that question, right. But I can suppose. And when I got home, you know, my father, I eventually had to pick myself up and get on that bike and ride home bleeding from my leg. And I got home, and my father explained, he's like, you know? Some people don't see you as a child. They see you as a man, regardless of how old you are. And he field-dressed my leg and (laughs) probably should have taken me to get stitches, honestly. (laughs) But, I mean, in a way, it was a very poignant memory. And it was a very poignant reminder that first time that I really did understand that some people are going to treat me very different than other people.
0: And in that moment, or as you started to get a little bit older, in terms of opportunity? Mm -hmm. Was that obvious stuff? Did you see it when it came to your finances? Or did your parents Mm -hmm. share with you, like, you're going to have to work twice as hard to get
1: half as far as everybody else? Yeah, I definitely got that messaging that you're going to have to work twice as hard. And you're gonna have to work twice as hard to be considered on the same level as a lot of other people, as many as some other people, right? And it was true with finance, too, because I was introduced very early to this concept that like, some people have generational wealth. Some people have wealth that they can trust will come to them. They know that when their parents or their grandparents or someone in their family passes away, they're going to get an inheritance of some kind. I was never treated that way, right? And whether I get one or not, I mean, my father's still alive, so i like, <laughs> I don't know. But- The last time I went to visit him for Juneteenth slash Father's Day, and he was like, I'm not leaving you very much. I'm going to leave it (laughs) up until I go. And and, I mean, to which, of course, I'm like, Dad, do what you need to do. Like, you know, you worked for it. Enjoy it. But yeah, I was in that situation where my parents warned me that some financial organizations are going to try and prey on you right? because, you know, There are predatory lending schemes and banks and cashing places that almost exclusively exist in minority communities, right? And they will bait you in with, oh, well, you get paid today. We'll take your paycheck tomorrow. But, oh, by the way, it's 21% interest or something like that. If you're lucky. (laughs) If you're lucky, right. If you're lucky. (laughs) Uh, So they warned me about those things. And they also warned me that I need to be assertive in advocating for myself in terms of my career. Because some people will not want to give me an opportunity at all. And then some people who do give me an opportunity may overlook me for a raise or a promotion. And I need to be ready to say, no, this is how much my work is worth, right? This is how much I should be paid. And if I'm not getting what I'm worth, I should be ready to go (laughs) somewhere where they will pay me what I'm worth. So they taught me to instill that sense of self kind of worth to understand what I deserve and what I should be able to go out and get. Yeah. I can imagine
0: that it's a struggle, Mm -hmm. you know, in the book, you talk about this a little bit of having to measure your responses when people come at you either in a predatory way, or Mm -hmm. even you talk about where you're so articulate, Alan, (laughs) that's so amazing, right? Isn't
1: that lovely? Isn't that
0: lovely? (laughs) Like, gosh, that's, and not even aware of the, the racial right. profiling that they're bringing right, into right. that comment. And I just imagine, I would find it very difficult on a, mm-hmm. on a daily basis,
1: not to be the angry man. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's tough, it's tough, because it's not like it doesn't impact you, right? Right. And people who can hear me right now, like if they don't see my face, they'd be like, is that a black man speaking? And like right. I used to get that all the time. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, you don't sound black. And I'm like, right. okay, stop. What does that mean? Right. Right? What are you saying? What does a black man sound like? Right. And that's kind of the the core of a microaggression sometimes. Like right. they may not mean the person who does a microaggression, they may not have the intent to cause harm, but it's not the intent that's important. It's the action. Right. So then when you force them to reflect on that action, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, I didn't. Oh, I didn't mean to say something like that. Right. And of course you didn't. And knowing that, now maybe you won't say it again. But yes, I absolutely I used to get that all the time and it's hard. It's hard because you do feel it. You do internalize it. The key is just to remember to like let that out in productive ways. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like I mean, let that out in therapy or let that out with people who understand what you're going through. And on some level, until everybody understands that that's not cool, you're just going to have to kind of push through it. Yeah.
0: Well, I imagine you have to take a lot of deep breaths. A lot of deep <laughs> breaths, yeah. Well, because I think people don't realize, and I want to talk about this a little bit, and I use a different example, but similar to the car accident. You know, if somebody chops off my arm and mm-hmm. they didn't mean to, <laughs> my arm is still missing. arm arm's I'm still, still an- missing. And I'm still angry, right? Right. <laughs> right? Yep. And even if they didn't mean to, that doesn't take away from my impact right how i've been impacted and, and, and i think you talk about that and what i appreciate is that you actually give a way to not be so defensive on the other side so when it's received yeah. because if we go at somebody and go wow you're a racist yeah. or that's just such a racist comment of course yeah. the feathers are going to be ruffled yeah and being able to say you probably didn't mean it you may not realize yeah again though even with all the rules in the book, the burden Mm -hmm. is still often on marginalized people. Yeah. It's that the piece that like for me is just, wow, like daily. Yeah. Even with this great information to be armed with, you know, to have, it's still
1: an unfair, unduly placed
0: burden. 100%.
1: It sucks because, and I tell people often, you know, it is not the role it's not the job of a marginalized person to fix systemic problems that lead them to be marginalized. Right. However, however, it is on marginalized folks. And I will say this, like I tell everybody this, marginalization is for everyone, right? Right. I mean, I'm Black in America, so yes, I'm part of a marginalized group. But like someone with chronic illness or someone who's disabled, they are marginalized too. You know, disabled people in ableist spaces. Right. I had a friend in a previous job who would never come out to drinks with us. And we were trying to figure out why. It turned out, well, they have a chronic illness and they're on a daily medication where if they drink, it doesn't work. And they just didn't want to be around that. As soon as I knew that, I was like, wait a minute, I can do something about that, right? right? I can say, instead of meeting at the bar, let's go out to dinner. Let's go get ice cream. Let's do something else, you know? But yeah, it is on some level still on individuals to take the steps to protect themselves. Yeah. And, to advocate for themselves. And while I hate giving marginalized folks an additional job on top of the job that they're already doing, right? Right. On some level, we have to acknowledge that, yeah, that additional job is not just in service of like your employer, but it's in service of you and your future growth as well. Yeah.
0: The question that I have is when you're not maybe as fortunate as you, Mm. that your parents were giving you some information ahead of time. Hey.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's going
0: to be a little rough. (laughs) When you walk out this door, it's going to be a different set of facts. There's a lot of people out there that may not realize initially that they're being marginalized, right? Yeah. They actually may take it personal and they may not understand the difference between the personal and the systemic. Right. That no matter what they do and they keep going, wow, this just keeps happening to me, but it actually has nothing to do with them. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, that's microaggressions, but it's a whole lot of different things where, gosh, why does this keep happening to me? And there's a slight difference, right? Where your computer was being unplugged. Mm -hmm. It is personal, but it's part of a bigger systemic piece where, oh, it's okay to do that.
1: Yeah. Can you talk to that a little bit? It feels important. Yeah, it's true. Like, that's a great story that, I mean, I lived through that at the times as well, like, I used to leave my laptop at work and, you know, I would come into the office in the morning after, you know, going home at night and my laptop would be unplugged. Or if I worked from home in a day and I came back the day after my laptop's unplugged and now it's completely discharged. So I tried to pick up my laptop and run to a meeting and I can't. I have to sit there and wait for my laptop to charge so I can turn it on and then I can go to the meeting and do the thing. It was awful. I'd never figured out who was doing it. Right. But that part wasn't even important the fact that it kept happening was the thing that was important. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier about like separating intent from impact. Right. I mean, somebody may have done that to annoy me. Maybe they were trying to get under my skin or they could have been using the charger to charge their own laptop while I wasn't at my desk or to charge their phone or something. I don't know. I will never know. But I do know that they were making my life and my work harder. They were making it more difficult for me to do my best work. So I think that it's important sometimes to realize that when things do happen to you, and I used to have a lot of coworkers who were like, oh, these things always happen to me. Well, okay, why? And keep track of when they happen and why you think they may be happening to you. Now, the why may not be important because you may not be able to do anything about it, but just keeping track of it matters. And having the psychological safety to talk to somebody else and say, this thing is happening to me, It's not cool. What should I do? Is so helpful and so important. If that person's a manager, even better, right? Not all of us have psychological safety to talk to our managers. But I found that it was expressly helpful to find other people who had been through this to turn around and tell me, listen, this isn't personal. This is definitely just how people are treated sometimes or how we are treated sometimes or how a marginalized person is treated sometimes. They may not mean to do it to you, but they do it to you because they have a social perspective of who you are based on your identity that makes them inherently respect you less or just think that, oh, they'll be fine if I do whatever. It's not there. It's not right. But it persists. And I find having people to talk to about those kinds of things is the real key to making sure that they don't completely derail you in your career. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's important to get support. Yeah. You know, the thing that I also wonder about, because there's some listeners out there saying, well, I want to be an ally. I want to do better. Mm -hmm. And that's also a tall order. I find when I try to have these conversations, if I'm a white person of privilege, having to look at my own racism Mm -hmm. and my own biases, it's really uncomfortable. It is. To have to own that place and go, oh, not only did I unconsciously do things, there have been
1: places where I have consciously been complicit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It sucks. I mean, I've had to do it as well. Like, I'm a man in a majority male workspace in a majority male industry, right? I've had hard conversations with, like, my peers or with women in the same field about, like, how much we make and the differences in pay for similar levels of experience. I mean, journalism is a very unique field in that regard, but, like, (laughs) you know, we do have to, when we reflect on those things and we see that it makes us uncomfortable, it's okay, right? And this is a thing that I tell people a lot, especially allies, right? It's okay. And we do, as a community, need to make more room for people to acknowledge past behavior and grow right? and make mistakes. And like, sometimes somebody's going to mess up and say something that's offensive and like, okay, you know? And those are the people who are going to be most receptive to hearing, Oh, no, 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 you shouldn't have said that. You're not a bad person. Right? right. But what you said is problematic. And that's so hard right now, especially right now, because we do need to differentiate. Like, I'm not trying to say you, person, are racist. I'm just saying what you said is racist. And of course, that's not who you are. And most people, I think, would agree. Like, oh, no, no, no. It's We're at the point where like, it's almost worse for someone to say that something you said is racist or say that you are racist than to say, like, hey, this is a learning experience. This is a growth opportunity for you. Right. Don't say that thing because that thing's problematic. We get lost, I feel, in a lot of public discourse right now, especially right now, that we don't leave room for people to grow and change their perceptions and absorb new information and use that to inform their worldview.
0: Yeah, I think it's so important. And just to people out there listening, make Mm -hmm. the mistakes. Yeah. Take a risk, have the conversation, be willing to make repairs and amends. Mm -hmm. But I think so many people hesitate because they don't want to get canceled or they don't want to make one step. Then everybody says, obliviate that person, because (laughs) how dare they have made this misstep?
1: Yeah, I feel like the first step for a lot of people is to stop and listen before Mm -hmm. they speak. So, I mean, listening to the voices of the people that you are concerned or people you're concerned for, rather than jumping in immediately, that helps a lot. I mean, I especially see this kind of thing on Twitter and on social media, where somebody will say something that is ostensibly innocent. Well, I shouldn't say ostensibly. I would say problematic, but they don't mean anything bad by it. And in some cases, they're doing it in the cause of growth. They're trying to understand an issue. And then- The rightful anger of people who have been marginalized can often come out at that person who is still honestly trying to grow. Neither of these two groups are wrong. The anger of marginalized people is real and they do need to be able to speak that anger and have space to be angry. Also, people who need to grow and learn and make mistakes, they need space to do that too. So I tell people to listen first, avoid speaking if you can until you have spaces and communities of people that you know will be receptive to helping you grow. Because there are people out there who are more interested in helping you grow than they are in canceling you. I promise you that.
0: (laughs) Are there times, even now, Mm -hmm. where you have to make a
1: decision whether to speak up or hold your tongue? Absolutely. Absolutely. I will say I'm very lucky to work a place now, work at Wired where we're all kind of in the same headspace on issues like marginalization and discrimination and things. I have a manager who is both a friend of mine and a very effective manager. I tell him sometimes, I'm like, listen, Brian, one day you're going to have to lay me off and I do not want you to feel bad about that. That's not going to be your choice. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But at the same time, I'm still in meetings sometimes where somebody will say something that's a little problematic and I'll have to decide, do I stand up myself? Or do I stand up for this issue that is personal or important to me? Or do I do something else? Do I take a different tack? Right. In many cases, I take a different tack, right? I will take the conversation offline. I will talk to them privately Mm -hmm. because sometimes talking to somebody privately is the way to go. Right. Instead of calling them out in a big meeting setting, you know? Right. So, yeah. So, I was shocked to read
0: that 75% of white Americans Mm -hmm. don't have a friend of color. (laughs) Now I did research and it said that that was first discovered in 2014. I really hope and pray that by the year 2022, that that's moved an inch a little bit or two, but that's shocking to me. Yeah. I was really surprised by that. And so the reason I bring that up is I was reading that piece about where you're in a group of people and people are like, well, I'm taking this affirmative action class. I'm taking a diversity awareness class. I am so woke. Mm. And that can be frightening Right? <laughs> that yeah. people that think they're allies might actually like, not be your friend. <laughs> so like that's scary, right? It is. I mean, I guess at least if somebody's like, I don't like you, you know where you stand, where people that are like, have another piece of cake while I stab you in the back. The back, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's real. That's real. Can you just talk about that a little bit? It's staggering to me that it's 75%. Yeah,
1: it's wild. I mean, I think the numbers have improved a little bit, but not a ton, which is kind of unfortunate. But also it kind of speaks to how, I don't want to say polarized, but how isolated our society is, right? I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up in a military family. We moved around a lot. Yeah, You know, that comes with pros and cons, right? I didn't have too many good, long-lasting friends. But when we did settle down in a community, I had a hugely diverse group of friends. And I went to school with a hugely diverse group of people. And that was wonderful because I got the opportunity to grow, in my own views, and I feel like that's missing from a lot of communities, and I feel like Mm -hmm. it's missing from a lot of spaces, not just in real life, but also in like social media and things. We tend to follow our own confirmation biases and settle in listening to people who say things that reinforce what we already know, and that's unfortunate because it's so powerful to hear sometimes the perspective of somebody who doesn't explicitly disagree with you, but just comes at the issue from a different place. And I used to tell people, I mean, again, I'm a journalist, but like I tell people, I miss the days when I could sit down with somebody who disagreed with me and we could debate policy (laughs) and not humanity, right? right? I mean, it was one of those things where like, I miss the days when I could debate somebody about how much school funding should be a thing, not whether or not we should fund schools at all, you know? Or like, foreign policy, like how much aid should we give to this country versus that country? And we could have a productive conversation and still disagree, but then turn away from that informed by each other's perspectives. And I feel like that that's kind of fallen by the wayside. And there aren't very many spaces for that anymore. It's really sad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: What would you say to people that are out there listening Mm who are feeling marginalized. And as you pointed out, we've all been marginalized at a certain point. We've all yeah. been minority in a particular group, whether it's we're older, we're mm-hmm. gay, we're mm-hmm. person of color. We may not just fit in with the majority of that group in the moment, but there are a lot of people that on a daily basis are reminded whether they're a wheelchair user or mm-hmm. they're a person of color where they don't get to leave that at the door. What would you say to those people in terms of, like working towards support for me, it's like how to work through not spending your entire day being angry Yeah, (laughs) because that's what I would be doing personally. I can tell you, how do you get up in the morning and go, you know what? It's worth living another day. Yeah. Even with all the crap that's going to be thrown at me. Like, can you just offer something there? Because like, I think there are people out there
1: going, what's the point? I'll give you two different things that are two different big tips that I give everybody. One, the biggest thing is please always make sure you find something that is outside of your career, outside of your job, outside of your regular day-to-day responsibilities, the things you have to get up and fight through that nourishes your soul, right? Mm. Whether it is spending more time with your kids or it's taking up a hobby, whether it's writing a book like the book I wrote, you know, do something that brings you intrinsic joy that you do for yourself and that has nothing to do with the rest of the crap that you have to go through. That's one thing that'll give you a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Like for me, my reason for getting out of the bed in the morning is to do journalism that helps people. And I know it sounds corny and it sounded corny for the past 20 years, (laughs) but it's true. You know, I get up in the morning and I say, okay, I'm going to edit a story that's going to help someone today. The second thing I recommend to people is to keep a work diary. And that's a tool for multiple purposes. It's a great tool for career advancement, obviously. But it's also huge catharsis. Because when you do get angry at somebody, you write it down in that diary. You just get it all out in that diary. But when you do something great, when you... When, you know, you have a success at work or you work with somebody you really enjoy working with, you write that down in the diary, too, because now you're starting to build a case for the things that you do well. And you don't need to dive into your memory to be reminded of what you're good at. It's right there on paper. And when you're wondering, I have an idea that might take my career to the next level— You know who to work with on it because you have a list of people you trust as opposed to the people you hate that they're going to come to mind immediately because you dislike them, you know? So keeping some kind of diary of like, I mean, mine is a running Google doc. A lot of people use notebooks. I buy lots of empty notebooks and then I don't write in them. (laughs) (laughs) I have a few of those. (laughs) Yeah. But whatever you use, just make a note of to yourself. I generally update mine daily as needed or at least weekly. But it's good to even go back months back and say, oh, man, I remember when I was dealing with that thing. It doesn't matter now. I was so angry about that a week ago, but now I'm not. And it helps show you to see that you are capable of that growth and you are capable of moving on past those things that frustrate you.
0: That's awesome. I think that's so important. And I know people will take note of that, but I do have some empty journals. (laughs) And I thought you would say you get up in the morning so you can watch more Star Trek, but... (laughs)
1: Well, dude, I am loving Strange New Worlds. Close second. Close second. I'm loving Strange New Worlds. Way more than I thought I was going to, but I love it. (laughs) Uh,
0: I love it. Well, Alan, we are at the Fast Five. All right. Fast Five is brought to you by Acorns, Ooh. Mm, where you can invest spare change, bank smarter, save for retirement, and more. For more information, click on the link in the show notes. So, Alan, we're going to shift it up a little bit. We're going to have a little bit of fun. All right. What fictional character or historical figure do you think deserves to be seen, heard, and paid more? Oh...
1: Historical figure. I'm going to go with James Baldwin, even though we all love ah, James Baldwin. <laughs> yeah. An amazing yeah, writer, journalist. Man before
0: his time, really. Absolutely. What do you think your best friend would say you spend too much money on?
1: Whoa, oh. <laughs> my best friend would tell me I spend way too much money on records. Okay. No, no, no. I take it back. Keyboard. Keyboard. Ooh, I love keyboards.
0: The keyboard king.
1: I am. It's true. Mm. How did you celebrate your book launch? I had a seafood dinner from a place in Harlem called Lolo's Seafood Shack. They don't pay me to say it, but they could if they wanted to. They have great (laughs) crab legs. If you're ever in Harlem, try them out.
0: (laughs) All right. Good to know. Was the best meal you
1: ever had also the most expensive? No, not at all. In fact, it was one of the most affordable I've ever had. It was in Budapest a while ago. Man, the food down there was really good. (laughs) Ah, awesome. What is the least expensive thing you own that means the most to you? Oh, the least expensive thing. Um, Oh, I have a pin from a friend of mine. It's like her own little likeness. And it was like, $3 $3 and I love it so much. <laughs> it's just a little chibi version of her holding up a knife and it's adorable. But I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> well, we are at our MM moment, our sweet spot. Mm. Our money and motivation. Do you have a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom that has helped you
1: through your life that that you could share with our listeners? Absolutely. I am a big fan of automating my finances. Mm. And, you know, I used to write about this at Lifehacker. It doesn't work for everybody. So, right. you know, don't. it's not universal. But I'm a big fan of I have one bank account that is for all my bills and all my regular subscriptions and payments. My checks flow straight into that or with a section of it portioned out to, you know, my little personal spending account. And as long as there's money in my personal spending account, I can have fun when it's empty. I can't have fun anymore. No, there's no more fun. (laughs) But at least that way, I don't ever have to worry that my bills are paid. The rent is paid. You know, I never have to look at my bank balance and say, do I have enough for the power bill this month? Right. No, I don't have to worry about that. So
0: Yeah, I think that's such a great piece of advice. And I love having my little fun account. Yeah. And there were times when it got to zero and I did not get to have fun until I got funded again. Exactly. But it's a really good discipline to (laughs) Mm -hmm. just really not just go out and spend the money that's sitting in the operating account, the house account. The house account. Yeah. I call it the house account. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, Alan, you know, this has just been such an important conversation for me. Yeah this conversation can't be had enough yeah. to really just keep highlighting the inequities that exist in the workplace and out in the world, frankly. But what I appreciate is your passion and your energy that <laughs> shares this information that is real yeah. and factual. And I love in your book that you even say, I'm not debating right. <laughs> if the impact is real. That's yeah. not up for conversation. That's not for conversation. Right? <laughs> so I appreciate that. But with a way that's engaging and inviting versus angry and frustrated, Mm -hmm. you know, the tools that you give are helpful and in a way that are disarming. And it's just so important that we keep having these conversations, even if people out there are afraid of misstepping. Yeah. Step out and have these conversations because if we don't have them, we can't heal and we can't move forward.
1: 100%.
0: And your book is an incredible example. And a useful resource to give people tools to go out there and make the world a little bit better. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Where can people find your book? Oh. And show it to us one more time. You worked hard for that. Yeah. I love this. Show us that book.
1: Where can we find the book? You can get anywhere books are sold is what my publisher tells me to tell people. But of course, you know, Amazon bookshop, anywhere like that. If you want tons of links, you can come over to my website. It's alan-henry.net. And I have all of the little bookstores and you can get the audiobooks and you can get signed copies if you want a signed copy. I think I still have a few up for sale online. So
0: awesome. Well, we will send everybody to your website. Thank you. We will let people know about the book. Congratulations on this release and all the hard work that you put into it. I'm glad that even though it went to junk, <laughs> your people made sure that this happened. Yeah. And Yeah, I just wish you the best and I so appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I really, really had
1: a great time. Thanks for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us.